Hello again. Welcome back to the Cot Red Podcast. I am Megan Light. And I'm Jesse Light. And if you don't already know by now, we are just two dog lovers who talk about true crime and horror movies. And then, you know, obviously our dogs too as well. And mythical creatures and cryptids and all that good stuff too. And spooky things. Dad was here earlier this week and he did our bonus episode with us. We dropped that one first as opposed to... Jesse's episode first, so we did a little flip-flop in this week. Yeah, Megan's dad's got Mondays off, so that was the best opportunity for us to all get together and do that. Yes. And, and we're, I'm, I'm so glad he came. That was I fun. I know. I'm glad that he got to come tell y'all some stories. He's got plenty more. Plenty more. I've grown up listening to stories, so one day he'll be back and uh, we'll do some more. We'll find another subject for... Oh, besides conspiracy stuff, because that's like... His fave. We'll have to come back and he'll have to do that. For sure. Or just talk about Bigfoot again. He's or cool just with that. more ghost stories or something. He don't care. He loves it. Let's see. We went to see Megan last night. Not me, Megan. Her name is spelt differently. But we've come to the conclusion that technology is n- no, no bueno. Dude. Dude, she hacked I mean, into everything. I knew that it, when I watched iRobot. So coming into this, I knew. Yeah, she didn't follow <laughs> the three rules. <laughs> Not that very and, well. And Terminator. like Yeah, like, have they never seen Terminator? Come on. They're going to learn today. My Lord. And then I was like, okay, I got to get the Jeep fixed for sure. Because we're going to drive that forever. <laughs> it doesn't have all the little on. It has computers, obviously, because it functions slightly, but it's from 1999. So it's not like a smart car like a lot of you see nowadays. But yeah, he's he's rolling now. He's he's doing good. Yeah, our RAV4 may fuck around and kill us one day. Um, I finally got the radio connect. That was exciting. Or uh, my truck having to recalibrate the windshield. Well, we did that that's for the so RAV2 when we got that replaced. Yeah, that's just... Such a waste of money. Just turn that shit off. Yeah, I can see pedestrians. I'm yeah. not going to hit them. I can drive my own truck, thank you. I think one of the things that irritates me the most about the RAV and your truck, and I'm sure a lot of other cars nowadays have that same feature, but when I put on my cruise control, I want it to go the speed I plan on going. If someone is in front of me, I do not want to slow down. Right, right. It's not autopilot. I'm not going to fall asleep. I'm watching where I'm going still. And your truck gets closer. Dude. On the cruise control in the RAV, because I guess the RAV's more of a family car. So it probably slows it down even more to create more like distance between you and the vehicle in front of you. But there's a reason I put it on cruise control. Either way, it's annoying. Yes. I always put it on cruise control. Or as soon as you put it in reverse... And something is like right around you, behind you. I see it. You don't have to beep at me. <laughs> I am aware of his presence. I drove like 15 plus 15, 16, 17 years without a camera or anything like that. I, I can see. Yeah. Anyways, Megan was good, though. I liked it. It was cool. It I was liked it cool. a lot. I recommend it. Yes. For sure. And then we talked about the menu a little bit when dad was here. We watched that. And then the invitation also, we mentioned that when dad was here. So if y'all want to watch the movies, there's at least three right there. There Of course, Megan's in theaters, but the other two. Invitation was on Netflix, right? And then 
The menu, I think we watched on HBO. I think so. Sounds about right. There weren't too many people in the theaters, though. I like going on Tuesdays. Five different groups and then one dude by himself next to me. With his earbuds in? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not judging you, though, bro. (laughs) Jesse was like, oh, he must hear my jaw clicking. He needed to get away. Yeah, while I was eating my Twizzlers. My, my jaw pops, so I'm sure that was annoying. Because yeah. I can hear it, so I know Megan, Megan oh, can I hear it. Oh, I live with it. It's just one of the things I love about Ever you. Ever since my car wrecked, I feel like that was when it happened, but I don't get stuff fixed, so. No, Jesse's <laughs> like, doctor, what's a doctor? All this pain, it's fine, it'll fade. You've only been to the doctor for, like, what, your ACL reconstructions? That's it, yeah. It's all right, I go for us. There's always a new ailment or something. I don't take medicine. Nope. I just recently started eating Tums when I... <laughs> Literally, he turned 30 and he's like, oh, Tums, where are they? <laughs> Jesse has our case this week. Might as well jump right into it if you are ready. He's going to hit on a, a local one to us here in Arkansas. Well, let's do this thing. All right, love. So my sources today, we've got ArkansasOnline.com, APNews.com, DisappearedBlog.com, ProQuest, got Fox News, we've got LifeZet, TheFreeLibrary.com, and on January 28th, 2008, 45-year-old John Glasgow was last seen in Little Rock, Arkansas driving away from his home in the early morning hours, likely headed to work. Now, what makes this case odd is that most missing persons are young. Two-thirds are under age 21, and more than half are females, according to the Arkansas Crime Information Center. Okay. 700 people were missing in Arkansas around that time. Wow. Of those 700, 46 were white men in their 40s. He was the only one, however, who was chief financial officer of one of the state's largest private companies. So a little background info on Mr. John Glasgow. First off, friends and family described him as soft-spoken, honest, dependable, and loyal, devoted to his wife, stepson, and large family, self-sufficient, competitive, and adventurous. He loved to travel, and he loved his cats. His neighbor for over 12 years, Brian Rosenthal, said he was a very stand-up guy, good neighbor, and a good friend. John Glasgow was born in Nashville, Tennessee, to Fern and Thomas Glasgow. He was the youngest of five children. He attended Nashville High School and then graduated from the University of Central Arkansas with a master's degree in business administration. Me too. He was also licensed as a certified public accountant. Not me too. (laughs) That's all like hieroglyphics to me. And that is why I hire someone to do my accounting stuff for me. Oh, yes. We got to get those papers together soon, by Uh, the way. I'm dreading it. Just thinking about it gives me anxiety. In 1990, he was hired by CDI Contractors, LLC of Little Rock, CDI Contractors was an Arkansas-based firm providing construction services across the United States. 
1992, Glasgow married his former high school classmate, Melinda. They weren't high school sweethearts. They actually both had been married before they reconnected in Little Rock 10 years after high school. That's kind of sweet, though. So they branched out for a second and didn't work out. And then, Like, there's a reason why we don't do this. Yeah. They lived in a house on South Lookout Street in Little Rock. Are you familiar with that? Is that along the river? I don't know. I'll look while you keep I going. Think so. I think it's near Cantrell, so yeah, probably. In 1995, John was promoted to the chief financial officer for CDI Contractors Firm after he helped uncover a seven-figure embezzlement by the previous CFO, Kevin Wheeler. And Wheeler, 32 at the time of his arrest, pleaded guilty to stealing more than $1.3 million from CDI. Good God! Right? He was given a 10-year sentence in state prison and was out after six months, however that works. But 10 years later, I guess he didn't learn from his mistakes, and he received a 36-month sentence in federal prison for embezzling again, this time almost $300,000 from MCDR Contractors and Construction Managers of Memphis. Jesus. So, yeah. Oh, yes. So, South Lookout is, yeah, it's off Cantrell. It's actually right by CDI's building down there, but it's near your uh, your favorite golf course down there. Okay. I knew it was close to where he worked. Yeah, it's Cavanaugh, Hillcrest area, down that way. That is not my favorite golf course, by the way. Are you talking about, uh, why am I having a brain fart? I know there's a dog park there. Oh, yeah, yeah. What is that one called? It's the one we play our tournaments at each year. Yeah, that's why I was thinking it was your favorite, because you've gone there several times. Rebsman. Yes, Rebsman. In 1995, CDI's annual revenue was $243 million when Glasgow became the CFO. By 2007, it had reached a record $580 million. Wow. Crazy. I can't imagine. Can you imagine just I can't being imagine. the financial officer for all that money? Just, Hands sweating every oh day you go to work. gosh. No thanks. Their founder, Bill Clark, had recently passed away, and his half-interest in the company was passed down to his widow, Margaret, and his son, William Clark, who was the new CEO. Glasgow was getting paid pretty well. Let's face it, he was making bank. Seven-figure salary. Ooh. He had actually just received a $300,000 bonus that month. Which, Shut up. Isn't that crazy? And it was just direct deposited into his joint account with his wife. Yeah, like one day you just go to at, bed and the next morning you wake up and you're like, oh, yeah, surprise. my gosh. I'd be happy to see 300 bucks added into my account. 300000 Shut up. And there was a plan after Bill Clark's surprise death to disperse Clark's share of the company before John had suddenly come up missing. The plan, according to John's brother, Roger, was that William Clark would get half of the Clark shares while John Glasgow and a number of the other CDI employees would each buy much smaller shares. And John, being the CFO, was in control of the year-end audits for the company and was also in talks with Simmons First National Bank to buy shares from the Clark estate. He was just over all that shit, so Lord. 
That's a lot of stress. Money is other people's money. That's stressful. Yes. But apparently there were buyout provisions that gave Dillard's the right to purchase Bill Clark's interest from his estate following his death. Because Dillard's had 50, they owned 50% of CDI contracting. So Dillard's and some of the officers of CDI were discussing an arrangement where Dillard's would permit these individuals from purchasing Bill Clark's interest from the estate. So it's all confusing and over my head, but there's just so much money involved there. Mm -hmm. It's a billion dollar company we're talking about. So anything is possible in my eyes when power and greed is in the picture, people will do anything for that. Oh, absolutely. But I think that John was different than these other big wigs. He and his wife seemed to think, or they seem to talk about it a lot, like, is it really worth all the stress to be doing mm-hmm. this job? She had a good job. They were young and smart and had plenty of money in the bank. They had options. They had already paid everything off. They had no debt, basically. Must be nice. Yeah. He was committed to that company, but knew that he didn't have to be. He could leave if he really needed to. And she was ready to support him if it was time to step away and go down another path. So leading up to his disappearance, which was on the 28th of January, on the 26th and 27th, Glasgow spent much of his weekend working overtime at the office on 3000 Cantrell Road in Little Rock. On that Sunday evening, John and his wife went to a dinner party with his older brother across the street from his office, which I'm not sure what's there back then, but I think a La Hacienda is there now. I just looked that up. Yeah, you might have to check. And when the party was over, the couple went home and John fell asleep in front of the TV on the couch with his cat on his lap while his wife went to bed upstairs. Okay. That's like the opposite of us. But. Right. <laughs> I was just going to say one thing. Looking where the location is, anybody that's local, the CDI where this guy lived, ever all that, that little area, that's where the town pump is. Oh. It's literally right down the street from the town pump. And then the Waffle House, I've frequented a lot at 2 and 3 in the morning. Well, if you don't know, the town pump has some really good tacos on Thursdays. <laughs> Because they're closed on Taco Tuesday, so they got to have it on Thursday, you know? Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah, so shout out, Town Pump. <laughs> <laughs> Spent many, many nights in my more youthful days there. So that was the last time that Melinda saw him. He fell asleep on the couch, and she was upstairs. He was last seen by his neighbor, Brian, pulling out of his driveway the next morning around 5.15 a.m., But he never made it to his office that morning. At around 2.30 p.m., Melinda received a phone call from one of John's co-workers saying that he never showed up to work that morning and he couldn't be reached on his cell phone. She felt like something was wrong, so she contacted John's brother and asked that he meet her at her home. She said, I knew that if he wasn't at work, something was wrong. That's just not John. He's the most responsible person I've known in my entire life. They made calls to their friends and family trying to see if someone, anyone, had heard from John. They spoke with the next-door neighbor who originally said he saw him leaving at 5.15, but Melinda said that was odd because that was way too early for him to be going to work. 
Yeah, it's right across the street practically from where they live. That'd be way overachiever to live right. leave that early, living that close. Around 6 p.m., Melinda filed a missing persons report to the Little Rock Police Department. And after thinking about it more, the neighbor, Brian, wasn't 100% sure that he saw John. He said it looked like the Volvo leaving the house, but he never saw who was inside. When police showed up to the Glasgow residence, Melinda showed them a notepad where John had written down their bank account number and lock combination. She didn't know if that was anything of significance, but thought it to also be weird because she knew that information already. She didn't need it written down in case of emergency or anything, so... Who was it for? Right. I feel like it was for her, but like maybe a just-in-case kind of thing. Leaving important information like that behind is is pretty telling to me, like he knew something was about to happen, maybe. Uh-huh. I don't know if it was going to be... So he knew somebody was going to kill him or if he was going to kill himself. I don't know. Or he knew like he was going to run into trouble down the road and he just wanted to make sure she had that just in case. I almost like went like a like a medical way. Like maybe he knew Alzheimer's or something like that was in their family and didn't want to forget information and wrote it down. But he was younger. Gosh, at 45 years He's, old, That's though? what I'm saying. He was younger, though. Yeah. Uh, Melinda later said that it was on the second kind of note card or notepad page on, the, on a to-do list, and she wasn't sure how long it had actually been there, if he wrote it that day or, like, who knows, weeks or months before. I was about to say, if it's a notepad, then you're tearing day after day or so when you're done with that top sheet. So maybe he just like opened it one day and written it in there real quick, closed it, and then he finally got to that specific notepad while he finally ran out of pages and was getting close. Maybe it really wasn't like the second page. Maybe it was like the hundredth page in that pack or something. Because I've got a notebook somewhere with all my passwords written down. I think it's in the closet. Man. All, all our stuff for passwords is like you've got to put a number, a special character, and a and a, a, capital. a capital, or you don't. It's like, it's confusing. We use the same thing on everything. I know, though. but anyways. Melinda- Y'all could hack us really easily, <laughs> by the way. It's literally the same password. <laughs> <laughs> Melinda told police that on Friday, January 18th, So that's 10 days before the disappearance. She saw her husband in tears for only the second time in 16 years after a stressful meeting with Dillard's executives. The first time she saw him cry was when his his mother had died. He told her that Friday that that was the worst day of his life. Now, John Glasgow, as I said earlier, CFO for CDI Contractors, half-owned by department store chain Dillard's, and the estate of co-founder Bill Clark. So CDI contractors had built or remodeled close to 300 department stores for Dillard's and put up some of Arkansas's signature projects, including Bill Clinton's presidential library. And Dillard's had a 2007 sales of $7.8 billion. That's just crazy. So that's where... That's where I bought my suit for our that, wedding. That's huh? where I got my little wedding dress. Oh, is it? Too. Okay, yeah. 
Melinda spoke about how leading up to the end of the year audit period, weeks before his disappearance, John was extremely on edge. Dillard's CFO, James Freeman, had sent some very relentless auditors to review CDI's books. And Roger Glasgow, John's brother, said that John tapped his own phone after receiving a threat over CDI's depreciation of its assets. John was being accused of having direct involvement with some of these things, just money coming up missing and that his job was on the line. So everyone at CDI knew what kind of person John was. They had his back. They didn't think he was involved in any of this, but Dillard's seemed to be worried about something him for some reason. Results from the tapped phone line revealed no additional threats, though. So after he tapped his own phone, That's there was wild. nothing else after that. But you've got to be pretty paranoid to tap your own phone. Like, what did those threats say and sound like to make him scared enough? I don't know. To do that. That's crazy. But normally he was a very easygoing guy. And I saw in multiple articles he was the kind of guy who chose character over money. He once paid back a $500 bonus that he won from an anti-smoking program because he ended up getting back to smoking again afterwards <laughs> and I guess felt, felt guilty. He felt bad. He felt like, yeah, he didn't deserve it anymore. And I don't know. That was just something I saw. He reminds me of like the average Joe who just happens to make a lot of money. Yeah. And I guess a shitty person would have probably kept the 500 even if they started smoking again. A shitty person would have already spent it. Probably. On cigarettes once they got back to smoking. <laughs> yeah. Well, Dillard's representatives didn't comment much. In a joint statement with CDI, Dillard's told Arkansas Business Newspaper that nothing was wrong with the CDI's accounting. And William Clark, the president and CEO, said that Glasgow suffered from pressure that was self-induced. So going back to Melinda and the investigation, she also gave police a drafted letter that showed John's mindset three days before he disappeared. So this letter wasn't sent out yet. It was just, I guess, typed up or written out. But it was a letter for Dillard CEO, William Dillard, on behalf of William Clark, the CEO of CDI. And it referred to a meeting between Glasgow, Clark, and the Dillards, and the CFO for Dillards, who was James Freeman. Okay. So this draft letter read, For James Freeman to come down here and say we are dishonest hurts us to the core. We have never been so offended in our lives. Now I'm concerned that our foundation is on shaky ground, I want to keep this partnership together and continue building on my dad's legacy, and I believe that is what he would want me to do. Will you please let me do that? If we can move forward, then I have a plan for how to do it. But first, you have to call off the dogs. So the accountants for Dillard's were down there looking at everything CDI had for the past two weeks, basically audit auditing the shit out of them. And John and the company were stressed out and worried, you know. I mean, what do you think about that so far? That's just... That is... If CDI is as good of a company as they are, then whatever the Dillard's company people are saying, maybe that's just to 
to take uh, attention off them because they're the shady ones and putting it on somebody else. Very, very possible. Melinda also told police that a 22 rifle was missing from the residence. She said her husband was stressed over events occurring at work, but never made any statements about harming himself. And John's brother, Roger, was reported saying that the rifle was a family heirloom that was rarely used. John could have simply moved it to a different storage area. He said, we don't know whether he took the rifle. It was one of the things that went into our thoughts about putting out a missing persons report, but that's not all that meaningful to us. I feel like, I feel like the rifle and I feel like the, the account and the lock combination... Being written down. I feel like they told the police that just to like make it sound more urgent that they oh, need to, to get find on John it. Glasgow yeah. faster or something or make it seem more serious. I can see that. You know, because it was right that day that I guess that everybody started looking. I don't know how long it usually takes for them to put out a missing persons report or to take that seriously or not for a 45-year-old man. Man, yeah. But. Well. Yeah, I can see that being a sense of urgency, but if they could also have told the police, like, who he is, who he works for, and that he's, you know, a higher up, because I'm sure CDI has done a, so many projects that even, like, the Little Rock police would be like, oh, he's important. Yeah. The the rifle was later found, though. Oh, okay. It was in the home. But- oh, his wife just... I think it was just in a different location than what she thought it was, or maybe, I don't know. On January 29th, the next day after his disappearance, John's gray Volvo SUV was found parked in the parking lot in front of Mather Lodge in Pettigene State Park in Conway County. Now, that's a little over an hour from their home in Little Rock. Yeah. We go to to Pettigene often. Yeah. Bunch of trails out that way. Well, according to Jesse, we'll never do the Seven Hollows trail again, even Dude, though I... Okay, now that I we know... I almost got lost out there and died. To, yeah, now that we know that there is a way out, we should go do it again. Shit. That was a long one. Yeah. Like it, five miles, it yeah, seemed like. It was a loop, though. I didn't think it was. We didn't see people for the longest time. We are like, did we take a wrong turn? <laughs> How do we get out of here? So Mather's Lodge, that's that big main building mm-hmm. before we do the cedar And then there's falls. a bunch of little tiny cabins all around yes. it. Yes. You know, big parking yes. lot. Yes, I remember. Okay. I, I never knew the name of that place. I just knew it was like, I thought it was like a visitor center, like called the visitor center or something. But Mather's Lodge, yes. That's the, as soon as you pull up to the main area of Petty Jean, I mean, you can't miss it. Yes. Okay. But you don't necessarily have to park there because there's other trailheads you can park at to go directly to, like, when we went to the seven, was it called Seven Hollows? Seven Hollows. Hollows. We parked somewhere else that time. Yeah, there was a, it was Seven Hollows one side and then the Boy Scout trail was the other side. And that one, that's the one that's like 10 miles. It's really long. It goes all the way around. Hmm. Well, a cell phone trace led investigators to that location. And because it was a company phone, the CEO, William Clark, called Scott Ford, the CEO of Altel. Oh, wow. And asked him to, like, expedite the trace. 
and investigators learned that the phone had bounced an electronic ping off of a cell tower near Petagene, although it hadn't been used to make any calls. So. Okay. So it was on at least. I guess it helps to know people, huh? Well, I'll tell for anybody that's really young, that's now Verizon Wireless. Right. Old school, huh? And there was also a, a tourist that took a photo with the vehicle in the background. Oh, really? Yeah, luckily. And a park ranger at Mather Lodge on Pettigene told police that Glasgow's car appeared in the parking lot there between noon and 1.30 p.m. on Tuesday. So do the math there for a sec. He, if he left at 5.15 a.m. Uh-huh. and the car didn't show up there till noon. What did you do for seven hours? Right. Six hours. Because it takes an hour or so to get there. Yeah. Very weird. He never well, showed up to work. He so Did he go by any banks? Was he getting funds? Did they ever look into any of that? Like looking on bank cameras or ATM cameras? No, no. His... Anything like that? Nothing? No money moved around with his accounts. The only thing I saw was that someone at a Waffle House in Russellville said that they served him that morning. And the police brought dogs over there and sniffed it out. And they picked up a scent, but it didn't really lead anywhere. So I don't know. It didn't lead to anything important, though. But that just... That's strange. Makes you question some things. Like, did he maybe meet somebody there and have a talk with them and then things go south or something? I also am very confused why he would be in Russellville because that's past Petty Jean, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Because Petty Jean's right on Moralton, right? Mm hmm. Yeah. It's so that's 30, even more 30 distance. miles past, maybe. Yeah. That's strange. It's very strange. So the car was unlocked at Mather Lodge, and it had John's laptop computer in the back seat. Company-issued cell phone was in there, and credit cards all inside, unlocked. Huh. So Glasgow's Volvo was forensically examined, and there were no fingerprints found. So that's very strange, too, because you would think his fingerprints, at least, would be in there somewhere. Right. That just makes me think someone, someone must have wiped it down after exiting the vehicle and just leaving it there. Like they were trying to be smart, but then they kind of weren't because then it takes away the fact that his are even gone. I mean, if he just went out there to commit suicide, why yeah, would okay. he yeah. wipe his own fingerprints down? That would make no sense. No. Because I know it's your vehicle. I, I read one article where it said there were no usable fingerprints. So maybe just smudges. I or don't know. just his. They never said that. Oh. So I don't know. A lot of the articles I tried pressing on had the error 404 or whatever. Oh, and like I they couldn't were too read old yes. or something. So that was very frustrating to deal with. It's either that error code or you have to pay yeah. to read the article. No. Unless y'all want to donate to the light household, I'm We not. just need $2, <laughs> guys. That's it. The Pettigene State Park rescue team began a five-day search for John Glasgow. George Stowe Rains of the Arkansas Forestry Commission arrived at Pettigene to act as incident commander. And John's brother, Roger, described him as kind of a psychological profiler, or at least he... <laughs> 
he wanted to be one, maybe. He's a BAU for the parks. Yeah, but his stow reigns, he just laughed that off saying, I know a lot about lost person behavior and we, we use a lot of statistical data. It's not that we profile, but we know a lot about what lost people do, whether they are hikers, hunters, berry pickers, whether they go uphill or whatever. He brought in a dog and a handler, but didn't pick up a scent. So from the car to anywhere, there was no scent picked up from the dogs. He was never there in that car. Well, that's that's what Stowe Rains thinks. He doesn't believe John Glasgow was there. He said that if he was on that mountain, they would have found him. Stowe Rains also said there's something fishy about this case. The more conspiratorial you get, the farther you get from what actually happened. In search and rescue, you learn to keep it simple. If a lost person's car is parked at the trailhead, then he's probably hiking on the trail. If the car is parked at the lodge, then he's probably staying at the lodge or he's going to go for a walk near the lodge and come back to his car in a little while. I was just wondering if they ever looked in his closet or figured out what he could have worn that day. Because if you're not wearing the right clothes to go hiking, you're not wearing your dress shoes out on Petty Jean. I couldn't find what he was wearing. Now, I listened to one episode by, what was it called? The side... What is it called? Sideline Sleuths. Sideline Sleuths. They no longer do episodes, but they did an episode on John Glasgow, and they said that he was wearing khakis, so like work clothes, and I figured he was probably wearing work clothes. Right. Me too. But still, like you're not, you're not going to go, like if he went to the lodge to meet somebody and plan on being inside and having that meeting, yes, you would wear your professional clothes, your work clothes, but... There'd be no reason for him to be out on a trail. Right. And you said this was September? No, it was January. Freezing cold January, I assume, unless it was one of those Arkansas days where it was 70 degrees out. Oh, but five I in September the, then? I don't know. I don't either. <laughs> but five in the morning on a January day in Arkansas, that's probably 20, 30 degrees out yeah. on average. And up higher like that. Yeah, Anyway, his vehicle was taken by police to process for further evidence and no additional clues pointed to where John was at that point. And like I said earlier, his bank account and cell phone records showed no activity on the day of his disappearance. His passport was left in his personal safe at home, so he didn't leave the country or anything like that. A statement from William Clark, the chairman and CEO of CDI Contractors, read, John Glasgow, our chief financial officer, has been missing since Monday. John has been a trusted member of the CDI family for more than 17 years and our CFO for more than 12 years. We have been and will continue to assist law enforcement in their search for John. We remain hopeful he will be safely located. In his absence, his duties have been carried out by other members of our accounting department and I am taking an active role overseeing the effort. All of us at CDI continue to pray for his safe return and for his wife, Melinda. But what I found weird was that they removed his name from the list of officers on CDI's company website just a week after his disappearance. Yeah, that is really fast. That's super fast. Unless they already knew something. Well, maybe. All right, fast forward a little bit. On April 13, 2011, 
John Glasgow was legally declared dead by a Pulaski County Circuit Court judge. The family was ready to move on at this point. They hadn't found him. It has been three years. No information on John's whereabouts had come up. Judge H. Van Smith wrote that the circumstantial evidence of John's death is substantial. John has been missing for three years without any credible information surfacing in that period that would suggest he might be alive somewhere. What's your stance on that? That it's taken three years and they find Clarem dead? Yeah. To me, that makes sense. Is that too soon or too late or what? Do you have any... I think that's... I think that's reasonable. One year, I feel like that's really soon. Three is three is decent. About that time, you know, you know, his wife is obviously, I, I would hope she's still grieving, would always grieve. But if there was something they needed, insurance yes. or money back, whatever it is, then it was probably time. At some point, you've got to move on. Yeah. And I saw they were getting a lot of hate for... Really? Yeah. For declaring him dead after three years, I mean, I think that's fine. I yeah, I find and that fine there's as no, well. There's no rule about how long you're obligated to wait either. It's not like he went missing, and like two weeks later, she's like, "Oh, can I get a death certificate?" Or like, it's already like dating somebody else right, or yeah, something right, crazy right. So like that. Three years is yeah. You've very waited. Reasonable. You've you've tried. You've looked. You've done everything you can. I think three years is just fine. Yeah. In 2013, John's wife, Melinda, said, I have just resigned myself that I may never know. I've turned it over to the universe and I'm moving forward. And she took up most of her time with work for the city of Little Rock. First, she was a recycling coordinator. Then after a promotion, she was a sustainability officer. She still lived in the same house that she shared with John in the Hillcrest neighborhood, and she remained close to John's family. So one lead that came up was a man by the name of Jonathan Bronner. He told his lawyer in the Little Rock Police Department that he knew where J- John Glasgow's body was buried. So 43-year-old Jonathan Bronner, a twice-convicted felon, there it is, said that he had been recruited by thugs from Malvern, Arkansas, to help bury Glasgow in a bean field near England, Arkansas, in Lone Oak County. Because he owed them money. John owed them money? Yeah. The man who makes seven figures. Oh, some thugs from Malvern, Arkansas, some money. Shut up. He's got money. I don't think they'd kill him. I think he would probably end up paying him, but I don't know. if It just sounds made up. And I just like, if you're going to, if someone owes you money, why kill the source that's supposed to give you your money back? Right. True. And there were extensive searches in these bean fields using best imaging equipment that you can find, but no remains were ever found out there. Melinda said she didn't know exactly what to think of Bronner's story, but she suspects there was some kind of truth to it, but I don't think so. I figure he was probably just searching for a reduced sentence like most of these guys are. Yeah. Besides, like, in his car is found... Like an hour and a half, two hours, the opposite direction. That makes zero sense. Mm-hmm. This guy was serving time at the Faulkner County Jail for the attempted kidnapping of a Conway County businessman in July of 2009 and for stalking his ex-wife in October 2010. 
and there was no immunity or plea bargains offered to Bronner in connection with the Glasgow case, and it kind of just stalled out after that. How wild. So strange. Very strange. <laughs> and I'm just thinking, too, like Malvern, and then the barrel would have been in England. What? Those are also very far apart from each other. Oh, yeah. Like, I was just in England. Well, Tucker, outside. Oh, yeah, y'all's food truck thing the other day? Yeah, I was with my brother on the food truck, and we were parked right outside England, Arkansas, a little tiny pass-through town called Tucker, and it's called Tucker because there's a Tucker Maximum uh, prison there. So we got to feed the guards. It was kind of cool, though. They were all very nice, surprisingly. That is cool. Now, on March 11th, 2015, seven years after John disappeared, a skull was found by two hikers that decided to go off trail. They were at the base of a cliff about 150 yards off Red Bluff Drive in the Pettigene Mountain. Now, this was about a mile from John's vehicle, but it, a mile as the crow flies. You know what that means, right? What? So, like, if there's mountains and shit, you're not going around them. A crow flies straight, straight. over. Straight, okay. Right? Ooh, that was a new one for me, love. <laughs> really? You hadn't heard that in Yellowstone? No. No, Teeter never says that. Teeter. <laughs> the two hikers at first weren't even sure that the skull was real, but after checking it out further, it had a tooth still attached, and... They came to the conclusion that it was, in fact, real and needed to report their findings. Holy shit. So thanks to dental records, the Arkansas State Crime Lab were able to positively identify the human remains as John Glasgow. Examiners did not find any evidence of trauma to the skull. They didn't find a firearm nearby, and the cause of death could not be determined. Roger Glasgow said that the news of this discovery was bittersweet. He said, We feel relief and a terrible sense of sadness. The family was able to say one final goodbye, but they still had a lot of questions about how Glasgow died. Roger also said, We want this thoroughly investigated. If there is a perpetrator that has caused his death, we want them found and brought to justice. We have always suspected foul play was involved and the discovery of these remains simply strengthens that belief in our minds. Are you looking up the trail or what? Yeah, I was or the looking road, up I mean. Red Bluff Drive area. Can you see how far that is from the Mathers Lodge? Yes, that's what I was looking at. Ah. Well, I mean, if you take, well, I don't know exactly where on Red Bluff Drive they right. were. But a round trip from the lodge, because it takes you on the road. Let me do the walk-in one. Hold on. I want to go, like, straight across. It won't let me go, like, from the lodge straight across to it, like you were talking. Like as a crow for lodge? Yes. <laughs> but if you were to walk around, it takes, it's 2.6 miles. But I don't know, like I said, I don't know exactly where. Where on the road? Yeah, yeah. where on that drive or anything. But, yeah, it's really, it's really close. Right there. There to there. Okay. I say there to there like y'all can see what I'm pointing at. I'm sorry. There to there. There to there. But there is the Rock House Cave Trailhead that is right there on Red Bluff Drive. 
So it's one of the trails begins right there. Okay. Well, ever since that skull was found, a team of about 30 law enforcement personnel from the Conway County Sheriff's Office, the Moralton Police Department, State Parks Department, Arkansas State Police, and the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission, all those people have been searching the area for any more remains because at that point they just had the skull. Yeah. A few days later, Arkansas State Police found more skeletal remains of John Glasgow. There was an Arkansas driver's license belonging to him and a credit card that were found in a wallet in his clothing. The remains of the skeleton were found in the clothing. All this was about 200 yards from where the skull was found. Okay, I was about to ask how close it was. Conway County Sheriff Mike Smith said other parts were found in the area strewn by animals. We are pretty sure we located nearly everything. We did find the bulk of the remains. When asked if this case was now a criminal one, Smith said absolutely not. He said, This has always been conducted as a missing person case. The investigation is now done. I'm definitely comfortable with it being a missing person found and closed case. So there's theories. He could have been suicide, right? Mm-hmm. He could have just walked away from all the stress and money problems. I don't think he'd leave his wife like I, that. I don't either. I, why would he go all the way out to Pettigene Mountain, too? He could have easily just jumped from the Arkansas River Bridge, which is much closer, right? Could have just gone, if you wanted a mountain, go to Pinnacle. Pinnacle Mountain, yeah, that's right there by his house. Yeah, it's like a five-minute drive down Cantrell. I mean, there was no murder weapon found, no signs of trauma to his skull, so that indicates he didn't shoot himself. And if he fell off a cliff or a bluff to his death, I mean, surely you would see some sign of that on his skull. Or a broke, broken bone somewhere else on his body. Yeah, it's tough after seven years being out there in the elements, though. I'm just thinking, like, they were, he had the tooth left and they had the skull. I'm wondering if they were able at some point to maybe extract DNA. If that tooth was viable, then I don't, I doubt poison would show up that long after. But, you know, it kind of makes you wonder if there was other things they could have tested or thought of. But if they sure. closed the case, she would have to have a reason to reopen it. Yeah. His wife would have to come up with something or or hire, which she could afford it, hire her own person. I just feel like if you wanted to kill yourself, there's better ways to do it than that. Oh, absolutely. It's just think if you failed, you fall and break your legs and you're just stranded out there in the cold. That's like the one woman that, oh, I can't think of her name, but she was hiking and they thought she was lost. And then the hike, some other set of hikers were climbing and took a picture. And you could see the, the girl's hair in the background. Oh, yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I remember you showing me that. It's just, there's so many easier ways. Yeah. <laughs> you could literally jump off the Arkansas Bridge and be dead at impact. So, I, you know, or use that 22 rifle and shoot yourself. I don't see why you would go... You would leave your house at five in the morning and drive an hour and a half. But that's the thing, too. The time, the time different. Yeah, the time in between leaving the house and getting there just doesn't add up. Somebody so knows So was something. there foul play involved? 
I mean, the only reason I think it could have been suicide was that he left the bank account and lock code for his wife to find, but... Right? I mean, is there anything else that would lead you to believe it's suicide? Besides the stress of having to deal with all that money and stuff? Yeah, but if you're stressed, just start drinking and smoking more <laughs> cigarettes or something. I don't know. Right. Uh, I mean, someone at Dillard's may have wanted him out of the picture. I don't know. If he found an error or something along those lines that Dillard's was trying to come in under the rut, like trying to come under and steal or move something that was more in their favor and he found it, that could have started the whole thing. Like, oh, CDI is corrupt and so is your... No, no, he found something. He had to have known something. People just don't disappear like that without reason. So we talked about what? That someone at Dillard's could have done it. I mean, it's a billion-dollar company after all. You can hire a hitman for pennies. And then the no fingerprints thing... No fingerprints found in the vehicle makes us think that someone wiped it clean after leaving it there. More of a professional thing to do. Yes. I think it's very possible that someone there, they met at Waffle House or something. It's very possible. I'm not saying they couldn't have driven. Or he met somebody at Mather's Lodge and was talking out there. Somebody from Russellville or something. And things just went south. and. Or... He went to meet them to discuss a problem because maybe the person he met was an inside man to the other company, to Dillard's, and they needed to meet in secret to avoid something like this. And then, of course, something still happened. It's very possible. Because, I mean, you would meet in a, a disclosed location like that way out of the way on purpose. The thing is, it's not a very... It's a public place. It's a public place. That's what I'm people saying. can see that. No, it'd be fine, but those people would just think they're two individuals having a meeting or sit down together. They don't need to know who they were. But if they're in public, then they're more likely to be safe because you're not gonna try something flashy with a bunch of witnesses. Well, how did he end up dead then? I don't know. Or did they kill him somewhere else? And then dump his body. Take his Volvo out there, park it. And then this whole search and rescue thing happens and they don't find him. And then like a couple days later, they put his body out there after the fact. That's what I would think. And then he doesn't get found for seven years because no one's looking for him. I think that. But if they don't catch his scent in his car, how long had it been since he was in that car? Because his neighbor never... Said, said he saw him. John for sure yep. leave the house. That's what I'm going with. So maybe somebody else came by and picked that car up from the, his house in Little Rock and drove it out there. But then how did he leave? How did he get out of the yeah, house? Yeah, God, there's so many ways to look at this, and it's yeah, making I'm, my palms sweaty. We need y'all to give us help. y'all's opinion on this because this is just, there's so many questions to this case. So, yeah. DM us on Instagram or comment on our post from this episode. Y'all see it because I really am curious what y'all think because I'm at a loss. Yeah, I'm just and I'm trying to go back to where he was found off the beaten path, off the trail. 
Because when you think about trails, even at Petty Jean or even at Pinnacle or Wooly Hollow by us, they reroute paths all the time. And he wasn't someone that goes and hikes every week. He hikes from now here and there, you yeah. know, but he wasn't like a professional hiker. But whatever trail he's off of, if he's off that red house or rock house, I'm sorry, rock house cave trailhead, that path could have gone that direction at some point, And then over the years, it could have shifted. And that's how they found their body off the beaten path was because at one point that trail could have gone that direction and made it easy to transport a body down that trail. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Because I took Derby on a hike when it was warmer and I was able to go up Wooly Hollow up these like um, they made like a steps out of these giant boulders. And when I took her last month, I went a completely different route, not even touching those boulders. So just within a few months, they had shifted my route that I take her on. Could have been easily something like that. It very well could have. I just don't know, Dude, man. Why you gotta be doing shit like this? No, it is wild. So yeah, we want to hear from y'all on this, but that is the case of John Glasgow. Our mind is so blown. I know he was killed. There's not a doubt in my <laughs> mind that someone killed him. But how and at w- what point? And they just closed the case just like right. that. If I was his wife, I would pay somebody to reopen that case. I would get a PI, start digging. There's Absolutely. something they're missing. She got money to pay them. Yeah, and a lot of, well, probably all of CDI and Dillard's is public record. I mean, they can go dig in. I would just tell that guy to watch his back. Yeah, I think someone definitely had him killed. And if they found a skull, how many years? Seven? Seven years. Seven years to find a skull. Yes, they found his remains in the clothing. How do you know that he wasn't killed five years after he went missing? Or four years after he... No one said he died right then and there. So where has he been? Man, that would be wild if he was held prisoner for five years. I or don't something, think that would you ever know? happen. But you, know you, I mean, never, you never know. People are weird. You never People do know. weird shit all the time. This... Ma- like, I'm glad they found... You know, I'm glad they found him. Yes, to put So ease. at least they know... At least his family knows, but man. That's a lot. It's a lot for one family to go through. I did see where Roger Glasgow, he quote he was quoted saying, he may be under some kind of compulsion, some kind of blackmail. That's a scenario you a scenario you could dream up. We're not suggesting any of these scenarios because we just don't know. But it does open up a Pandora's box of possibilities. I'm with it his does. brother. Yeah. I mean, just you and I sitting here, we've said how many different things could have happened. Mm-hmm. Add that plus years of people doing the same thing in group chats or whatever. We've seen enough Criminal Minds episodes to know that anything is possible. You damn right. Dude, that's wild. I'd like to hear people's opinions on that for sure. Guys, like Jesse said, hit us up. We want to know what you think. 
We want to argue. We want to bicker. We can go back and forth. Give us some thoughts. We'll share them next week, which is when I'm going to do my episode. I haven't started on mine, but I think I'm pretty sure how it's going to go. You know me and my my topics of choice, so you know what to expect, guys. I don't think my mom can listen to that one either. <laughs> You're going to ruin my day next week? Yeah, I'm real sorry about that. No, I think it'll be fine. But until then. Stay local. Shop local. Murder local.